It's 11th of September 2021. You're listening to Article Read Aloud podcast from Care Productions. Today we have picked up two articles, both from the Indian Express. The first article is written by Pradab Banu Mehta. Two other towers that fell. Let's read aloud the first article. The unprecedented acts of terror on 9/11 when death literally fell from the sky were ostensibly motivated by an impulse to revenge and restoration. The perpetrators who carried it out sought to teach a lesson to the West and reposition their version of Islam as a powerful political force, but like a blast whose reverberations fly in all directions, the deepest impulses behind the attack were less strategic and more apocalyptic. They set in motion two crises that are still with us. The first was the crisis of the West. It is often said that more than 9/11 it was the overreaction and response to 9/11 that shaped its meaning. There is a great deal of truth to that. 9/11 became the pretext to start two wars, put in motion the perpetual war machine, legitimize unaccountable exercise of executive power, institute the surveillance state, provide mendacious justification for torture and reinstate the idea that civilian casualties could be counted as mere collateral damage the west was weakened in two ways the united states was drawn into wars that it could neither win nor sustain they also left a trail of political dislocation from iraq to afghanistan this weakened the us geopolitical credibility and authority but the west was weakened through a betrayal of liberalism domestically and abroad In response to terror liberals tried to steer a path between what Mikhail Tomsky at the time had called the choice between Chini and Chomsky but in fact they wound up all in the Chini camp as the war careers of Barack Obama and Tony Blair testify liberalism has still not found that foreign policy that does not leave the world open to terrorist regimes and their sympathizers on the one hand and does not develop into arbitrary overreach causing needless suffering on the other as idea liberalism depends upon presumptive trust in the world and in the dignity of individuals it depends upon even if faint a sense of innocence about the world where the other is not is not an object is not an object of suspicion it can rely it can rarely survive a climate of fear the most consequential outcome 911 was to enshrine terrorism as an abstract and all pervasive idea in our imagination it showed that even very small groups under the right condition can produce spectacular effects it created a disposition to believe that any location or person could be a target or that threat lurked in the most unlikely of places it is true that the west unconsciously overreached but this is exactly the psychological alchemy terrorism produces the state is politically damned if it is seen as not taking every measures to prevent another attack 
that there was no repeat of an attack of that scale in the US might be chalked up to at least some kind of success, but it came with a price. Many measures used in the war on terror weakened liberalism. The overreach of Western powers also gives succor to the very enemies it is trying to combat. But if preparators of 9-11 wanted revenge against the West, they also wanted to reconfigure Islam. This created a second crisis. In its semiotic, 9-11 was a modern event. Not only did it use modern technology, it used a modern communicative strategy, create a spectacular event to establish a new norm and get more recruits to the cause. It also wanted to destabilize all forms of authority in the Middle East. Al-Qaeda and response to it also marked the death nile of varieties of Arab nationalism. These trends predated 9-11, but 9-11 accelerated the crisis of authority from Egypt to Afghanistan and beyond. New groups like ISIS that rose in the wake of Al-Qaeda deepened the crisis of authority within Islam, replacing the old conservatism with a new and more repressive radicalism. But they also depend an already in incipient crisis of authority of the nation state from state form in West Asia. If the West had an interest in and overreached in its strategy, the same could be said of states in the Middle East and North Africa. One of the less talked about aspect of the war on terror is how much these states fear the destabilizing effect of transnational groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS that could in turn threaten their legitimacy. The irony of all this is of course that the West had to ally with repressive regimes from Saudi Arabia to Egypt. They served each other's interest. But ironically it made the West an ally of very repression that had spawned religious radicalism in, in the first place. If the intent of the attackers was to induce a paroxysm of self-destruction in the West, it was equally to introduce a repressive, fratricidal and apocalyptic violence amongst its Muslim co-religions. Yemen, Afghanistan and Iraq were just three of these battlegrounds. So in some ways, the aftermath of 9-11 became not a war between Islam and the West, but states of all kinds and radical Islamist groups whose playbook was shaped in the aftermath of 9-11. India, despite being a prime target, weathered the storm relatively well because democracy provided a safety valve and inoculation against the temptations of apocalyptic terrorism. Its biggest challenge came from support for cross-border violence in Pakistan. Countries like Pakistan spectacularly played both sides of the argument, positioning themselves as indispensable allies to the West while doing their best to create an environment propitious for terrorism. In one sense, the twin crisis that 9-11 unleashed, the crisis of liberal statecraft and the crisis of authority from Saudi Arabia to Afghanistan are still with us. Biden would like to think that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan might help mitigate the first crisis. But the victory of the Taliban on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 will likely politically exacerbate both crises. It will deepen the contest over authority in a number of states and important fundamentalists. Critics of liberalism will seize on its seeming inability to push back the Taliban. Domestic divisions within the democracies will likely make a coherent response difficult. While all established states fear the destabilizing effects of transnational terrorism, they will also be tempted to both fish in troubled waters and secure themselves first. So a coherent international response is also unlikely.
20 years and hundreds of thousands of lives later, we are back where we started. In grip of a fear, we still don't know how to address politically. The second article, The Muslim Politicophobia, written by Hilal Ahmad. The term Islamophobia is rather inappropriate to map out the nature of post-9-11 Indian public debates on Muslim identity. Islamophobia, which simply means an intense dislike or fear of Islam or prejudice towards Muslim, is a Western notion. It captures the anxieties of the middle-class white population in the US and Europe in the aftermath of the war against terror. Muslim identity, on the other hand, is an established problem category in India. The political class, including the so-called secularist, has never been fully comfortable with Muslim presence. The involvement and participation of Muslim communities in political processes is often reduced to an imagined Muslim vote bank politics, while their social life is always seen as a symbol of backwardness. The events of 9-11 intensified such apprehensions. Popular global phrases like jihadi Islam, Islamic terrorism, Sharia rule, and so on offered new meanings to already established debates on Muslim separatism and Muslim isolation. This interesting merger between global anti-Islamism and anti-Muslim communalism led to a new political consensus which may be called the Muslim politicophobia. Political parties adopted this refined mode to address Indian Muslims in the post-9-11 scenario not merely as a problematic religious minority but also as part of global Islamic Ummah. Three defining features of Muslim politicophobia are relevant to understand the changing political attitude towards Indian Muslims in the last two decades. 1. The slow and gradual transformation of the Indian Muslim identity into a reference point for global Islamic terrorism. The Islamic connection between India's Muslims and the Islamist jihadi organization is evoked as the most legitimate template for making sense of violent events associated with Islam and Muslims. 2. Completely different statements made by Indian Prime Ministers in the aftermath of 9-11 are relevant to elaborate this point. In 2002, Adil Bihari Vajpayee argued stridently that Muslims quote, begins want to spread their faith by resorting to terror and threats. The world has become alert to this danger. Court ends. Three years later, Manmohan Singh made a very different argument. He took pride court begins in the fact that although we have 150 million Muslims in our country as citizens, not one has been found to have joined the ranks of Al-Qaeda or participated in the activities of Taliban. Although these statements offers us two completely opposite conclusions, the manner in which Muslim identity is linked to the global terrorism clearly underlines the fact that Muslim presence in India is seen as an imprint of global Islam. The reason Afghanistan crisis a good example of how Muslim politicophobia functions in public discussions. A section of the media has been trying to interpret this crisis by evoking a strange speculative fear. They work hard to find evidence that Indian Muslims subscribe to the ideology of Taliban. There is popular conception that India, red Hindus, must not rule out the possibility of an internal version of Taliban or an Indian Taliban precisely because there is a sizable Muslim population. The fear of active Muslim political engagement, or even the lack of it, is the second feature of Muslim politicophobia. The renewed debate on Muslim vote bank in the last three decades is a good example. Muslims are alleged to vote as collective in favor of a particular party at the national level. In the post-Babri Masjid scenario, the scope of this 
argument has been expanded. It is now claimed that Muslims primarily take part in electoral politics to teach lesson to BJP. Last year's Bihar Assembly election is an appropriate illustration of this feature of Muslim politicophobia. The Hyderabad-based party All India Majlis Ehtihad Muslimin AIMIM won five Muslim-dominated constituencies in the state's Simanchal region. The success of AIMIM under the leadership of Asaduddin Uwaisi was seen as an Islamic response to BJP's Hindutva. Even serious secular commentators and non-BJP parties accused Muslim voters of communal Islamist voting response. No one bothered to look at the political context of Simanchal region where caste among Muslims played a significant role in AIMIM's victory on those five seats. The almost insignificant vote share of the party at the state level, 1.2%, was also neglected simply to substantiate the imagined fear of Islamic expansionism in Indian politics. The third feature of Muslim politicophobia is related to the popular representation of Muslims as politically conscious community or what I call Siyasi Muslims. It is assumed that Muslims are fully conscious and informed of their collective right and hence always take politically motivated decisions. This perception has found a different overtone in recent years. Every aspect of Muslim social life is seen through the prism of global jihadi politics. Muslim population growth is interpreted as population jihad as if Muslim couples plan their families primarily to outnumber Hindus. Muslim personal law is seen as a blueprint for Sharia-based Islamic rule in India. An impression is created that the Sharia is the only hurdle between egalitarian Hinduism and the modernist idea of the uniform civil code. The anti-conversion laws, which are strangely named freedom of religion laws, are also based on this fear that poor and illiterate Hindus are being converted to expand the influence of Islam in India. It would be completely wrong to reduce Muslim politicophobia to Hindutva politics, although the BJP has always been a clear beneficiary of, his, of this political discourse. The role of non-BJP parties cannot be ignored. These erstwhile secular parties as well as the Muslim political elite were instrumental in creating a conducive environment for Hindutva to appropriate Muslim politicophobia.